Okay, we're in chapter 14, and we were learning about Rechavam, son of Solomon, and we saw uh, in verse 22, things take a turn to, for the worse, where it says, And Yehuda did evil in the eyes of Hashem, and it says, and they angered uh, Hashem, they angered him more than their forefathers had done. So their sins were worse than the previous uh, sins that were done by their forefathers. So what were these sins during the reign of Rechavam? So now the next two verses will explain them. Verse 23, So it says, They built for themselves Bamot, which Bamot are high places or altars, So Matsevot that they built are monuments, and they planted trees on every hill, and under every green tree. So there's an, the Shera worship. We know that the Canaanites were heavily steeped in Canaanite worship. And so it says the Jews also did it here in verse 23. That's what it seems to say, a pretty heavy accusation. Now, according to the Malbim, the Jews did not actually do it themselves, but because they permitted the Canaanites who we know was still in the land, they permitted the Canaanites to continue these practices unimpeded, then it's attributed to the Jews as if they themselves committed these sins. We know it's, it's a serious problem that Joshua did not dispossess the inhabitants of the land. And as long as the Canaanites were still in the land, even if they were not a physical danger at this point, they had a certain spiritual influence. And here, according to the Malbim, the very fact that they were continuing their heathen practices that's a blemish on Yerechavam's kingdom. Um, according to the um, Ralbag, he says when you say Bamot or Matsevot, it's not necessarily Bamot for Avodazara. When you say the high places and altars, well, we know that altars were permitted in the times uh, preceding the Beit HaMikdash. Jews had altars and they sacrificed on those altars if it was in their backyard or on their rooftops, only after the big Beit when the temple was built, then the altars became uh, forbidden because at that point, God wanted everybody to go to Jerusalem, to the, to the temple, to the, to the Temple Mount, and sacrifice there. But we know that these altars, it was something that remained entrenched in the psyche of the Jewish people. And throughout the days of um, the kings, all through the book of Kings, we see almost except for Chizkiyahu's time, I believe, was the only king who, who got rid of him. We see they remain, these altars, so they were not necessarily for idol worship, but they were private altars that Jews had in their private uh, premises. Now, Matsevot, monuments, they weren't always illegal. We, we know that um, Jacob, our forefathers, he, is, he built two monuments, and Moses had monuments. They built Matsevot. It was a common thing amongst our forefathers. And it says, though, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, in chapter 16, verse uh, 23, that you're not allowed to build a Matseva because Hashem hates them. That's the verse in uh, Deuteronomy. Hashem doesn't want you to build a Matseva. And the, the, the verse is, Lo yakim that's Deuteronomy 16, verse 22. Now, so we see at one point, Hashem did forbid these matzevot. And the Ramban explains in his commentary on that verse that we just mentioned in, in Deuteronomy, that 
the matzevot were very common. They were even more more common than altars. And every temple contained a monument, and they would use it to sacrifice upon, anoint with oil, and so forth. And because they became reminiscent of idolatry, because the Canaanites also built matzevot, so Hashem did not want us to have anything that reminds us of these Canaanite practices, so eventually forbid it to build a matzeva. But at one point, it was very common, and so were trees. The Ramban explains also in that same commentary that outside the temples, they would plant trees to guide those seeking the temple. It would be like a path on the way of the temple, and that might be the asherah that's mentioned here. And the Ramban says in churches, you'll still see these trees leading up to the church. But again, because it's reminiscent of these pagan practices, the Jews are not allowed to plant trees. Even on the Temple Mount today, it's forbidden to plant trees. Unfortunately, the Arabs uh, who have to be up there and sovereignty on the Temple Mount with their mosques, plant trees there. So we see that Bamot and, and Matzevot were once permitted, and even trees might have been permitted at one point, until it became associated with the idol worship of the Canaanites, who were so heavily immersed in that, that Hashem, at the end, told us to stop um, building these. Except the only thing we retain is the altars, because that's the bare necessity for performing our sacrifices. We had to have something for worship, so we retain the altars, but we can no longer build a matseva or plant any trees. And now we go to verse 24, and that explains the next uh, sin committed in the days of Rechavam, and it says, "Vegam kadesh And what is a kadesh that was in the land? Well, a kadesh sounds like the word kadesha, and a kadesha is a female prostitute. So a kadesh sounds like a male prostitute, but it's probably more of a general term for sexual immorality, which was in the land. It's possible also that the Kadesh is a reference to homosexuality that was in the land. That was the sin mentioned, that there was homosexuality. Why do we, some uh, commentators speculate that? Because it says it was a toavat agoyim. It was the abomination of the nation. So we know that word, uh, a toeva, is also used to describe homosexuality back in the five books of Moses. So because of that association, we think, that Kadesh could be a reference to homosexuality. What's interesting, though, is Lashana Kodesh, the holy language, where we have the word Kadesh, which is almost the same as the word Kadosh. It's the same root. And Kadosh means holy. And Kadesh is something that's not holy at all. And that's very common in the Hebrew language, where the same root will have totally opposite meanings. And that's to teach us that the Jew has free choice. He has free choice and he can be holy, or he can be the very opposite of holy, a kadosh or a kadesh. So we're going to go on now to the next verse. And it says, verse 25, And it was that in the fifth year of Rechavam, King Rechavam, that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came against Jerusalem. And it continues in verse 26. And he took the treasuries of the temple. So Rashi brings the Midrash where the, the, who's Shishak? Well, he was one of the Paros, one of the dynasties of Paro, a very strong Paro. And 
Rashi brings the Midrash where it sounds like cheshek. Shishak likes the word cheshek, which means to crave or to long for something. So it, it says in the Midrash there that he longed for the throne of Solomon. That throne, that glorious throne that we saw in chapter 10, Shishak was interested in it. He wanted to get his hands on it. And he comes and invades Jerusalem. Now this is the same Shishak, according to the Radak and others. This is the Shishak that Shlomo married his daughter. That's the Paro that Shlomo associated himself to when he married Bad Paro. This is the same Paro. So we see that alliance with Shlomo certainly went awry. It was Shishak who harbored Yerovam ben Nevat, a nemesis of Shlomo and Rechavam. And now we see Shishak, because of the sins of Rechavam, Hashem is using him as his agent to invade Jerusalem. So he takes from the treasuries of the temple and from the palace of the king. So he takes all that stuff that Shlomo had in there, all those beautiful treasures. And he took all those golden shields that we mentioned earlier. All the golden shields that Shlomo had in his palace and in the temple were pillaged or were um, looted by Shishak. And it says in verse 27, So after the temple was plundered, it says that Rechavam, in, instead of uh, golden shields, he made these bronze shields, copper shields, and he put them under the jurisdiction of the captain of the runners, who guarded the door of the king's palace. So it says now in the next verse, verse 28, and it was that when the king went out to the house of the Lord, he went to the temple, uh, the runners would carry these shields, and then they would carry them back to the runners' chambers. So what's this all about, these copper or bronze shields that Rechavah made with these runners? So there's two possibilities. It could be that uh, King Rechavah remained, kept the king's protocol where he had, for his honor, this entourage of runners carrying these shields. Uh, so that was for his kavod. But... According to the Kliyakar, that's not really very, very uh, grandeur or uh, honoring the king to have a bronze shield instead of the original golden one. That's more of a disgrace and humiliation and maybe a symbol of Rechavam's subjugation to Shishak than anything else. So he suggests, as does the Radak, that maybe this was simply uh, protection, that these shields were used for protection and they they, uh, were an escort for Rechavam, protection against a rebellion. So that's really basically what the book of Kings chapter 14 has to tell us about King Rechavam. But again, when you learn the Bible, and we've mentioned this before, you've got to supplement your learning, especially when you're ta- learning about the kings of Judea, you've got to supplement your learning with the Chronicles. Because Chronicles emphasizes the uh, exploits of the kings of Judea, and some very impertinent facts that we have to learn about Rechavam here as we go to chapter 11 in Chronicles, and that's the parallel verse to what we just learned in Kings. And some interesting facts here that it says that Rechavam, um, first of all, he built up the cities of Jerusalem. It's not just the Beit HaMikdash, but all the cities of uh, Bethlehem, those cities in Judea, 
near Hebron, Tekoa. There's a list of cities written here in chapter 11, verse 5, verse 6. He built them up, fortified these areas. And also it says that in verse 13 of the same chapter, that the Kohenites and the Levites presented themselves to Rechavam. They actually left their territories from the kingdom of Yerovam after they were dismissed from ministering there to Hashem. And they came to Rechavam to fortify his kingdom in Jerusalem. And the end of the, um, uh, in, in uh, also chapter 11, the same chapter in Chronicles, it says they came to Judea, bolstered Rechavam for three years. So, they, so it says that for three years, Rechavam was very, very righteous. He followed the path of David and Solomon for three years. So that explains uh, why uh, Shishak came in to invade in the fifth year when uh, after Rechavam sins, in those verses we read previously, after that, Shishak of Egypt comes to invade Jerusalem. But we have some good things happening early in his reign. Now, when we talk about Shishak's invasion of Jerusalem, we got to, again, we have to turn to Chronicles and, and see a lot more that happened. It says in chapter 12, the next chapter of Chronicles 2, that, again, it mentions just like it says in the Book of Kings that in the fifth year of Rechavam, Shishak ascends against Jerusalem. And now we have some extra details. He came with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen and countless people. They came with him from Lub, from Libya and, and Ethiopia and Africa and Sukim, wherever that is. So he comes with a massive amount of soldiers and he ascends upon Jerusalem and he captures on his way the fortified cities that Rehavam had built up which we just read about. So this was a serious campaign. It wasn't just coming in for a cup of coffee like it looked like in the book of Kings, chapter 14, that he came for a small visit, took the, uh, took the uh, shields and left. Here we have a very serious confrontation. And what happens in the continuation? Well, the prophet comes to Rechavam and the prophet tells Rechavam that Atem Oti, in the name of Hashem, the prophet says, you left me, so I'm going to leave you. That's what Hashem says to Rechavam. And that's why I am delivering you into the hand of Shishak. And then what happens is the officers of Israel and the king Rechavam humble themselves before Hashem. They repent and Hashem, uh, they declare Hashem is the righteous one. And at that point, when Hashem sees that they have done tshuva, he tells uh, the prophet that he will not destroy Jerusalem, but instead of pouring out his fury on Jerusalem, which he intended to do, he will leave. Uh, he will let Shishak um, subjugate them for a while, but will not pour his fury out on Jerusalem. And that's a lot more of a, a complete picture we get out of the Shishak invasion and plunder of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, what's very, very interesting, though, is that we have very, very clear uh, artifacts and evidence of Shishak's campaign, which happened in the 10th century of BCE. It's very well documented. In the south of Egypt, there's a large, large court that he constructed, this Shishak, and he has these walls that he wrote on, and I'm going to try to attach a, on this shiur a picture of that wall, and there written is a commemorative relief of his exploits in Israel. 
his campaign, his outline there of all the places he attacked. And surprisingly enough, most of the cities he captured, mentioned, were cities in the northern kingdom, in the Machut of Yerovam. Jerusalem isn't even mentioned there. And that's kind of interesting. And we have to look at it. Why would there be a contradiction between this, this historical uh, wall that's called, by the way, the Bubastite portal, and it's uh, in the south of Egypt. And again, something that really tells us in great detail what Shishak did. He actually built it for his own glory. And when we see a uh, apparent discrepancy between historical facts on the ground that we see in artifacts or archaeological digs or historians, and many times there's a discrepancy between that and what it says in the Bible. And you can get all bent out of shape about it, but you have to always understand that the Bible, it's not a history book. The Bible comes to teach us deep lessons, moral lessons, eternal lessons. So from the Bible's point of view, it wasn't important, all of Shishak's uh, conquests and what he did to the northern kingdom. What's important to the narrative of, this, uh, uh, of, the, of the Bible is to bring over to us the divine providence and how Hashem orchestrates events, how that when the Jewish people sin, that Hashem will use the, Jew, the uh, Gentile kings like Shishak as a stick of his fury, as it says about Ashur, in Isaiah, Ashur, Shevet Api, Matezaami, that Assyria is the stick of my wrath. And that's what Shishak is here. So that's the lesson we want to get from the Tanakh. We're not interested in what Shishak was doing for his own reasons. Now, for, for Shishak's own self interests, he was, he was uh, obviously trying to conquer Jerusalem with that huge army that's mentioned. And he was trying to conquer it to bring back the glory of the Egyptian empire, which once had Jerusalem under its dominion. We know from history that Shishak was a very, very powerful paro. And he was trying to conquer Jerusalem. And that's, that's his motive. So we have man's motive, his going through natural means. But Hashem is orchestrating the history according to his plan. While man has his free choice and his own motives... In the end, Hashem is bringing things like puppets on a stage according to what Rechavam, if he sins or if he does tshuva, and he's manipulating these kings. So the question that's, that's left to ask is, what about those 50 cities that were captured according to the historical document in south, south, southern Egypt that's not even mentioned here? So so it's likely, and this is uh, Yoel uh, Elitzor, Professor Yoel Elitzor, he's a historian and a scholar, biblical scholar, and he uh, says that it's very possible that Yerovam and Shishak, we know that they were allies because we know that Shishak harbored uh, Yerovam when Yerovam escaped from Shlomo, so they might have planned to wipe out Judea because that's a common enemy to both of them. So when, but when Yerovam left Shishak and became king of Israel, he wasn't willing to wipe out Judea along with Shishak. He wasn't going to go that far. And he wasn't, he wasn't willing to be some vassal of Egypt. So the plan to attack Jerusalem, Yerovam from the north, Shishak from the south, 
to sandwich Jerusalem, that whole plan went off. It didn't work because Yeravam didn't participate in it in the end. So when Shisha came to Jerusalem, all he could do was ravage the temple, but he could do no more because Yeravam didn't participate with him. And so instead of taking out his fury on Jerusalem, Shishak went on and he took out his wrath on the cities of Yeravam's empire. And that's the fifth, over 50 cities like Megiddo and Pinuel and the Eastern Bank. We saw places that were ravaged on the wall of Shishak. So that is what maybe happened historically. But the scripture, the narrative in the Bible isn't interested in that. They're more interested in the story of tshuva, repentance, where Hashem is orchestrating the events. They're more interested in, not in what Shishak did, but what he didn't do, what he, was, what he did not do because of the tshuva of, of Rechavam. So we're going to now wrap it up, uh, the next few verses, wrap up the uh, chapter 14, Kaftet, 29. And that's a typical way of wrapping up the king's career. We say the rest of the events of Yerachavam and all he did, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. Now, that's not the same book of Chronicles that we just read today. This is a specific book just for the kings of Judea, but we don't have that book today. And it says in verse 30, And there was war between Rechavam and Yerovam continually. So even though we saw earlier on that at the outset of the split, a civil war was avoided, where the prophet told Rechavam not to fight against Yerovam and the Israeli kingdom, Eventually, there was civil war between the two kings. And by the way, this is a war, a civil war that continued to, to, for the next several generations between the next kings of Yehuda and Israel. It went all the way through until we get to finally the kings of Yoshafat and Achav. At that point, we see cooperation. But up to that point, this continual civil war between the Machut Yehuda and Machut Yisrael. And finally, it says, And Rechavam lay with his fathers, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And his mother was Nama Emonit. That's the second time we mentioned that. And Yemloch Avia Beno Tachtav. And Avia, his son, reigned in his place. In Chronicles, uh, it mentions that he had 26 sons and about 50 daughters. Lots of uh, wives. Maybe trying to imitate his father. And what he did with the 26 sons was he kind of spread them around his kingdom and gave them high positions and he left Avia next to him so there wouldn't be jealousy among the sons. So when he summarized uh, Rechavam, we have to see that he wasn't nearly as successful as his uh, fathers, David, Solomon. But then again, those are pretty hard acts to follow. And the Datsofrim, and the commentary of the Datsofrim says that when, his, when the empire of Rechavam was split and he was left with a sliver uh, of a kingdom compared to what his father had, this, ma- this magnificent, huge kingdom, all that was left for Rechavam after that split, which was decreed by the prophet, by Hashem, when he was just left with that small, small, um, tiny kingdom of two tribes, well, that was kind of traumatic for him. He wasn't able to overcome that. And therefore, he wasn't very successful. He was in a tough spot. And so, we're going to now, in the next chapter, talk about 
the successor to Rehavam, his son, Aviyam.